Hey folks, Kim here. For today's episode, we're going to be talking about a big deal climate event, the Conference of the Parties, or COP. To do that, I'm going to hand off the episode to producers Greg and Izzy, who have been to COP multiple times. Enjoy! In a matter of days, the largest global climate event on the calendar begins. That event is the UNFCCC COP. That's the Conference of the Parties for the United Nations Framework for the Convention on Climate Change. The decisions made at COP affect us all. And today we're lifting the curtain on this mega meeting to see what it's all about. To me, it feels like this weird combination of like, being on the International Space Station and like in an airlock and like then being in this weird world of like this quasi-international space where people speak in acronyms to each other and it's completely confusing. And then also like a high school reunion yes. or something. Because like, you know, you, you get to know people and you get to know both your friends who you work with, but also sort of your enemies who you like stare down and like, ah, oh, that negotiator. That's us chatting with Jamie Hen. Jamie is a prominent climate activist, director at Fossil Free Media, and a co-founder of the well-known environmental movement 350.org. It's very weird. Like, the more you hang out here, the more dystopian it sort of begins to feel. It's like a weird Black Mirror episode at points. Um, high school in an airlock. Yeah, high school in an airlock, I guess. That high school reunion in an airlock is the COP. For two weeks, negotiators crowd into rooms debating the fine print of international climate agreements. And whilst the political negotiations take center stage, there's a whole lot more happening. COP is also a place for scientists to press for policies in keeping with the latest climate research. It's a place where NGOs and activists line the conference corridors, calling out the top polluters and pushing for climate justice. It's a space where businesses and industry watch on keenly and circling the whole get together is the media, making notes, gathering quotes and beaming it all out to a watching world. With up to 40,000 people congregating at modern cops, this reunion, like no other time of the year, puts climate action in the spotlight. listening to Climate Decoded, the podcast that deciphers climate change communication. We untangle how different narratives illuminate or obscure pathways to climate justice. I'm your co-host, Greg Davis-Jones. And I'm your other co-host, Isabel Bordish. When we sat down to plan out some of the most important examples of climate change communication to discuss in this podcast, the Climate Cop was top of the list. Exactly. As far as climate change communications go, the COP is one of the biggest platforms there is. Getting stuck in the nitty-gritty of its processes and outcomes, what works and what doesn't, seemed as good a place as any to start. Yeah, and on top of that, Greg and I have been to several COPs before. We've gathered a lot of material and talked with all sorts of COP goers from youth activists to former prime ministers. So with COP28 around the corner and the news storm swelling, there was no time like the present to tell this story. Across two episodes, we're going to deep dive into the COP, and inspired by this analogy of the high school reunion, we'll be telling this story through the lens of the high school experience. 
So together, we'll be guiding you through this pubescent roller coaster of a time and introducing you to the different groups of high school cliques at COP along the way. And we're also going to take a critical look at the school rules that govern the COP and how, all too often, these rules can lead to what we're calling cop-outs. These are fundamental problems within the COP. Problems that must be tackled to create a process that is fair, equitable and just. Because we, along with many others, believe that justice must be at the heart of climate action. Finally, mainly for my indulgence, I've managed to strong arm Greg into including multiple references to the great high school movie canon. Bonus points for identifying all of them. So as we now step through the cop, imagine it, if you will, through the lens of your clueless teenage eyes on your first overwhelming day at a new school. The nerves and rumbling trepidation of what's about to unfold over two weeks at COP definitely has some comparisons to the way one might feel the night before starting at a new school. The scale of COP can daze and confuse even veterans of the process. I spoke to Glenn Peters, climatologist and research director at the International Centre for Climate Research in Norway. He was heading to dinner after a long day on the circuit at COP25. Okay, and uh, lastly then, Glenn, because I know you've got to go off and eat with your friends who are waiting over there very patiently. Um, what's it feel like to be at a COP for those people who have never been here? Uh, chaos, massive. The, the first COP you go to, and it can depend, you know, if you go to a Paris-type COP, uh, which was, you know, when the Paris Agreement was adopted, or the one after at Marrakesh, or, uh, you know, certain COPs are much bigger than others, and it can be a... It is a sight to see, like, the organisation is pretty amazing, but it's just a gigantic machinery, in a sense, mind-boggling. You know, when you've been here a few times, it, you know, it tends to, um, you become immune to it, in a sense. But, you know, if you stand back and just think about the size of these things, they're huge. Cops happen all over the world, from the alleyways of Marrakesh to the boulevards of Paris. But somehow... The look of the buildings, the pop-up structures and the sense of entering COP remains fairly consistent, irrespective of the location. But how did they start? Think you can manage to give us a brief history, Greg? Well, let's give it a go. It all started in Brazil's largest seaside city. In the winter of 1992, a major United Nations conference called the Earth Summit was held in Rio de Janeiro. The world leaders who gathered wanted to agree on a plan to stabilise atmospheric greenhouse gas concentrations to prevent what was described as dangerous human interference within the climate system. Rio was a big deal. It was the first time that so many nations came together to discuss the environment and development. To get a whole lot of countries to make a plan, a framework was needed. This led to the creation of something known as the UNFCCC. So, bear with me as we go on a bit of an acronym bender here. The UNFCCC stands for the United Nations Framework for the Convention on Climate Change. Modus operandi to stop dangerous human interference with the climate. Convention is basically a fancy word for a treaty. That is, an agreement that places a legally binding obligation on those who have signed it. 
those who have signed the treaty are called parties to the treaty, and they get to decide what it looks like. To get a whole bunch of parties to decide, regular meetings are needed. These regular decision-making meetings are called Conferences of the Parties, or COPs. There are currently 197 parties that are part of the UNFCCC, and thus far there have been 27 COPs. COPs exist for other UN mandates, like biodiversity for example, but today we are specifically talking about the Climate COP. The world met in Rio to discuss the fate of planet Earth. The Kyoto Protocol provides a truly global framework. In 2009, COP15 in Copenhagen. So, Greg, hit me with your best COP. Well, some have been memorable for what's happened, but more still for what didn't happen. <laughs> like that one time at Bandcamp? Yeah, there have certainly been several COPs of note. Many of you might have heard of the Kyoto Protocol, of the Copenhagen Talks, the Glasgow Climate Pact, or the Paris Agreement. Well, these were all connected to COPs. COP21 in Paris was seen as a success. And it was COP21 in Paris that delivered the crowning jewel of the UNFCCC process thus far, the Paris Agreement. A treaty that saw every nation pledging to keep a lid on emissions that would limit average global temperature rise to preferably 1.5 degrees and well below 2 degrees Celsius. But whilst there was an agreement, many argued it was heavily watered down. Yeah, exactly. Countries still got to choose how much they would reduce emissions by. And these reductions weren't sufficient to actually keep temperature rise under 1.5 or even 2 degrees. The Paris Agreement also avoided including a few high-polluting industries. And when you dug into the agreement, there were a lot of assumptions it relied on, like that we would be able to remove large amounts of greenhouse gases from the atmosphere and fast. Assumptions a lot of scientists dispute. This year, COP will be held in Dubai. The start of COP will mark the end of the first evaluation of global progress towards meeting the goals of the Paris Agreement. Sadly, the grades on these exams are likely to be ones better off hidden from your parents. But there is hope that this will be the alarm bells needed for nations to truly step up their efforts. More on what COP28 holds later. First, let's rejoin where we left off, entering the doors of COP. Arriving at COP and passing through security checks brings up our first COP-out. Remember, COP-outs are super bad problems that we see with the COP. In this case, it's that COP is not a house party that anyone can just show up to. It's invite only. To access many of the negotiations and events, you need an accreditation, also known as a badge. And to get a badge, you need a country or an international agency or an observer organization, like a scientific body, an NGO or university, to give you one. So these badges and the resources needed to travel and stay at a COP can restrict whose voice is heard. Hello. Thank you. Hello. After accreditation scanning, it is into the labyrinthine venue itself. And it's basically like one ginormous school cafeteria in terms of the range of people and things happening. (laughs) 
guiding you with what's happening where and when, our maps lining the walls and screens slowly rolling through the daily schedule of 1001 events. To picture the COP, imagine an enclosed stadium subdivided into big UN-style halls, fluorescent lighting that picks up every tired line on your face, thousands of people perpetually rushing somewhere, small side rooms with obscure numbering systems, civilians hosted by different countries and organizations, endless corridors. It's the most convoluted, overwhelming high school cafeteria you can imagine, really. And there's this perpetual feeling of go, go, go and be everywhere and do everything at once. Yeah, and panning around the high school cafeteria, you see so many people connected to climate action in so many different ways. So it's time to find out who all these characters are. Let's take a seat at our first table alongside the climate negotiators. Well, if COP is a high school, it's all eyes on the group that has just set out to the football field. The jocks of the COP. The political delegations and climate negotiation squads from the different countries engage in multiple games of political football simultaneously. Across the venue, negotiators huddle over oversized tables and quibble over the construction of the sentences that build up to become the different agreements. It is these negotiations over text that form the backbone of what the COP is about. They reflect the outcome of each COP and the commitments to addressing climate change moving forward. In order to imagine what these negotiations are like, picture multiple meeting rooms with delegates seated around in a circle with their special country placards taking it in turn to put forth their perspectives. India, please. Thank you, co-facilitators. As we come here to closure of this session. There are lots of different negotiating groups meeting during COP. Each focuses on a different aspect of climate change with different mandates and outcomes to work towards. You'll hear phrases like Article 6 or Article 2 or... Article 12.8.5.1, Clause B, Version 2. All this technobabble basically refers to the specific parts of the climate agreements that are being debated. Groups of negotiators meet at least once or twice daily and are refereed by a chairperson, there to listen to all the suggestions, draft a text that takes them into account, gavel them through when there is agreement, and blow the whistle if things become more heated. The COP negotiations have different focuses each time around. But essentially, they revolve around a few core concepts. And you'll hear these continuously mentioned when climate change is discussed in different contexts. So, listen in a little closer for a moment. It's time to play Explain That Buzzword. First up, mitigation. Go, is Mitigation. Greenhouse gases in the atmosphere are causing climate change. So, let's stop putting new stuff up there and remove what we can. Essentially, mitigation is stopping the problem at the source. Tell me about adaptation, Greg. Okay, so adaptation is dealing with the damage that has and will be done by climate change. In short, it's managing the impacts. And lastly is loss and damage. Right, 
Lost and Damaged explores how to support and compensate the communities and environments already bearing the cost of climate change-induced disasters today. It's like insurance for what has already been lost and damaged by a changing climate. Then, underpinning these core concepts are more technical negotiations about what's needed to deliver these objectives, like how to raise finance, what benefits technology and markets can provide, and how to manage the process in a way that is transparent and drives each country to be more ambitious. So in summary, COP negotiations are about deciding how to collectively reduce atmospheric greenhouse gas levels and adapt to the problems they will cause and have already caused. But then, Greg, I would say that underpinning those technical questions are bigger overarching questions of justice and equity at the COP. You'll often hear talk of common but differentiated responsibility. This means that all states are responsible for addressing climate change, but not equally so. In essence, that some countries are in more of a climate debt than others. These countries are predominantly in the global north, also referred to as developed nations. The global north is responsible for more than 90% of excess greenhouse gas emissions. They have a long history of burning fossil fuels and contributing to the changing climate we see today. And a longer history still of exploiting other countries in the process. If this kind of behavior was marked down on your school report card, you wouldn't be coming back to class. To top it off, in the present day, global North countries generally have more capacity to make swifter greenhouse gas emission reductions. Yes, and couple that with the fact that countries in the global South also referred to as developing countries, are bearing the heavier brunt of climate impacts despite having emitted far less greenhouse gases than countries in the global north. This is why a lot of the political action at COP is all about negotiating this balance of accountability. It's about determining how much more responsibility wealthier countries have to cut emissions and to support impacted countries with finance and technology to deal with climate change. With a finite amount of carbon that can be emitted to keep average global temperature rise to within the critical thresholds outlined in the Paris Agreement, quick reminder, that was well below 2 and aiming for 1.5 degrees Celsius, trying to calculate what a fair share for each country to emit is nominally scientific. But when trying to decide questions of historical rights and responsibility and who has to pay and by when, past and contemporary power dynamics are inescapable. This lands us at what are arguably the biggest questions of the COP. Who is responsible for climate change? Who is paying the price? And how, if at all, can we rectify this? Because without fairness and equity being integral to the COP process, we won't have climate justice. And without addressing climate justice, we won't solve climate change. With more on this, here's Harjeet Singh, Head of Global Political Strategy at Climate Action Network International. So this process remains an anchor where uh, we demand and can achieve climate justice. This issue is relevant from the point of view that there are a couple of developed countries whose emissions have caused the problem. So if we have to get global climate justice, this is the only place. This place is also useful on one hand in delivering justice by providing finance, technology and capacity building support to developing countries, but also looking ahead and, and creating a vision for, for this planet. 
from that perspective it's important and then it gets connected to the national politics and also national policy making process Now we know more about what types of decisions are made at COP, we need to find out how they are made. This can be a slow game for a number of reasons. COP decisions are made based on consensus. Everyone has to agree. And as every party at COP is sovereign, no country can be forced to do anything they don't want to do. Plus, often when negotiators arrive at COP, they already have their marching orders from home. There are many, many meetings that happen on the road to COP. And by this point, negotiators know their bottom line, and it's unlikely to be shifted very far in two weeks. In other words, the game strategy is pre-decided. It's like the match result was fixed ahead of kickoff. This is another challenge of the process, another cop-out. Here's Jamie Hen with more. In many ways, the decisions have taken place already back in our home capitals and back in those media landscapes. And the negotiators are sent here to sort of work within a certain, you know, box. On a, on a leash. Yeah, on a leash. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. On a very yeah. short leash. And so our job is to like extend the leash all year so that then they come here and are able to bark a little louder about certain <laughs> things. But even if negotiators bark as loud as possible, it can still be all bark and no bite. This is because many of the COP outcomes are not legally binding. Rather than rules, they're more like guidelines. Countries can say they will reduce carbon emissions or pledge a certain amount of finance, but it is up to them to put these agreements into national legislation. And national legislation is determined by more than just climate. Our next COP out. The COP is filled with more rumours, more gossip and more scandal than Regina George's burn book. Present and past relationships between the different countries in attendance affect how decisions get made. These climate negotiations don't happen in a vacuum, even if the venue can sometimes feel like one. Geopolitical relationships, be it trade tensions or ongoing regional conflicts or travel bans in a pandemic, cast a long shadow going into each COP. We discussed this with Aneli Sapoanga, former prime minister of Tuvalu, and still a major champion for the climate. And now, of course, we have all sorts of geopolitical things coming into play in uh, in the international uh, engagement level. We have all sorts of policies being issued and complicating the whole thing. And we have trade wars. All these are complicating the focus on issues like climate change. One typical way this geopolitical element plays out is seen when oil-rich nations stick together to protect their assets. Or the way a country that relies on another for development aid might be inclined to support their donor when a decision comes down to the line. There's a lot of I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch mine. What you've just heard is a snippet from a COP negotiation session. Thankfully for you, that's all we're going to play. These sessions are vital to establish unified action on climate change, but they do tend to be long drawn out affairs due to the arduous and complex nature of drawing up international agreements. 
ever tried to do a group assignment with 196 other people? Trying to agree on what to write and how to write it with so many other players at the table takes a long time. Every time negotiators can't agree on a text, it gets put in brackets and postponed. Here's Anneli again on the frustration that accompanies this process. We keep on talking and talking and talking, but there is no action. Sometimes I wonder whether we need to have cops at all, whether we, we should just stop having cops. The conference of the parties. The more cops we have, the more people will say, okay, wait for another, for the other cop, wait for the other cop, whilst the small islands are being eroded into the sea. Of course, on the one hand, words can make all the difference in a text and the power it wields. I remember there was a moment at COP24 when a high-level negotiation ran hours over time because the US, Saudi Arabia, Russia and Kuwait, countries not known for their progressive climate action, objected to including the word welcoming in a draft agreement intended to recognise a key report issued by the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, who are a leading body of climate scientists. Instead of welcoming, only the more lukewarm phrase, take note, could be agreed on. Consider the difference between a teacher welcoming you into the classroom or just taking note that you've entered the room. The vibe is different. I can also remember that debate, running overtime into the Saturday when the big climate march was happening outside. And I, I felt really conflicted about it. I mean, sure, we need strong wording. How can the best outcome for the climate be pursued otherwise? But on the other hand, when you have been captive in the venue so long, sometimes you can't tell if a textual change is actually that meaningful or if you've just drunk the Kool-Aid. Largely, though, it's hard not to feel frustrated when you are in a room late at night listening to a debate on a specific phrase again and you are fully aware we are in the middle of a climate crisis with a ticking clock. As climate activist Greta Thunberg famously said, They've now had 30 years of blah, 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 and where has that led us? Angelique Pompano, lawyer, negotiator, and environmentalist from the Seychelles, delves deeper into the problems of language use at COP. Here, the language is very much one that is overly politicized, in my view. Um, it it's, appears to be issues of us versus them. Um, and there is that, that narrative of... Um, sort of developed versus developing countries um, whilst not appreciating the, the tangible real impacts on human beings and the lives that, that are being affected by climate change. Uh, to some extent, it always feels like in this space we're having a fight over semantics, which is very important when you're an international policymaker and an international lawmaker, the fight, the fight on semantics. Um, but it almost feels like the women, the female farmers in, in sub-Saharan Africa and their stories are being forgotten in this whole debate. When we're talking about climate change, it's about the real-life impacts or what we can actually see um, and hear and feel when it comes to, to climate change. This S&M that Angelique referred to is another cop-out. 
and it's one of the biggest failings of the negotiation setup. So how does it actually play out? Well, remember how we mentioned that the COP, by its history and its nature, divides Global North and Global South over their responsibility in the climate crisis and the impacts experienced as a result of it? Well, this divide and the associated power dynamics are on show even in the way the COP is designed. These dynamics are subtle. They are school rules that you will not find listed anywhere, but they are there. And just as high school cliques can define where you sit and what you wear, these influence how the COP plays out. To be specific, too often negotiations are determined by whose voice is more influential and whose voice has the resources to be loudest in the room. Apologies, we don't have a mic. Just wanted to, um, Marshall wants to share. I remember one time during a meeting, the speaker from Marshall Islands had to literally request a microphone. It was an accident, someone had just counted wrong, but it drove the point home. Some nations will arrive with a huge negotiating party. At COP27 last year, the UAE registered 1,073 delegates. Kyrgyzstan registered one. At any given moment, there are 10, 20, 100 meetings happening at COP. Some official, some more informal, each focusing on a different piece of text. And then each text being negotiated can be 10, 20, 100 pages long. So is it possible for a small party to read all of that and be in all of those places at once? As if. Basically, the odds are stacked. Cast your mind to the jocks running around the football field. Well, now imagine that it's like 30 negotiators on three. And then for those three on the pitch, meetings can go late into the night and start early the next day. In Katowice, I was tracking adaptation negotiations, just watching and note-taking, fueled along on a diet of the daily free chocolate and apple handouts. And that was tiring for me, let alone how the negotiators would have felt. Because after those negotiations concluded, many of the smaller, less resourced parties jumped on a bus to travel 80 kilometers to neighboring city Krakow as accommodation options close to the conference were so limited. During the day, bigger parties had offices. Smaller ones worked in the corridor. And if you were run off your feet or can't physically be in the room where it happens, it's yet another hit in trying to get your country's story out there and into the final decision text. And if it's not in the text, well, it's hard to stimulate the climate action your country wants or moreover needs. All that said, with a lack of alternatives, the COP still functions as one of the few places where making these kind of vital decisions for the climate remains possible. So you just keep fighting like there's no tomorrow. Ronnie Jameau, tireless ambassador for climate change in small islands from the Republic of Seychelles, spoke with us on why he and many others keep coming to COP. What brings every islander to COP24? If there's one global meeting we try not to miss, it's, it's the COPs. And if we had money to go to just one meeting a year, it would be the COP. It's because it's critical to our survival. And in some, in, in some cases, it's critical to the physical existence of many of our islands. So we come, they're going to take a, a decision on climate change, whether we're here or not. So we have to be here. We have no choice. With that motivation in mind and their limited delegation sizes, this is why smaller parties form negotiation blocks, which are basically bigger teams comprising like-minded groups of countries. 
These blocs work together to push for certain negotiation outcomes or jointly present a specific point of view. EOSIS, for example, is the alliance for small island states and is made up of 39 island nations. You also have the LDC or least developed countries bloc. These blocs usually meet early in the morning before negotiations kick off, debrief on the day before, consolidate position statements, assuming they are as a group in agreement, and they go out and repeat for the day. It's less divide and conquer the work, more divide and survive. It's these alliances and seeing diverse countries support each other in the quest to collectively combat climate change that sparks hope in the COP process. Here's NLA with more. The Nordic countries, the African countries are working with us, the small islands. So I think, um, yeah, there is mileage that uh, I think we must congratulate ourselves. I mean, it's not a perfect, but it is there. It is something that we should continue to put our faith on. And I, I, I don't share the view to give up this process. I think we need to continue. Regardless of how imperfect the process may be, but it is the only credible process. And it's on that note that we are going to leave you for this episode. Greg, what do you think? Is the COP a credible process or is it just one massive cop out through and through? Well, we've seen a number of elements that undermine the credibility of the COP and its ability to deliver climate justice. The fact that so much is already decided before it starts, the geopolitics, the discrepancies between access and the resources different delegations have. But so far, we've mainly focused on one particular clique in our global climate high school. And I don't think you can really evaluate the COP without talking to the other groups that attend, the scientists, the activists, the lobbyists, the media. There's a whole lot more to this story. Yeah, exactly. So in part two of this episode, we'll be meeting these groups and understanding what their role is at COP. Our insider exploration of the COP high school reunion has just begun. So join us for part two and more behind the scenes at COP. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Bye. You've been listening to Climate Decoded. This episode was produced by Isabel Bodish, Chantal Koff-Schultz, Greg Davies-Jones, Laura Davies-Jones, Kim Kenny, and Jens Vendel-Hansen. More info about this episode, a transcript, and resources can be found in the show notes and on our website, climatedecoded.com. Follow us on all the socials on Instagram, LinkedIn, and the place formerly known as Twitter at climate underscore decoded. If you'd like to support the show, please hit that follow button on your podcast pipe of choice and drop us a rating or review. It honestly makes a big difference in enabling other people to find the show. You can also consider subscribing to our Patreon channel. For $5 a month or about the cost of a cup of coffee, you can really help out the podcast. And with that subscription, you'll also get exclusive content and more behind the scenes about our episodes. A final great way to support the show is simply referring it to a friend. It really helps us grow our audience and get more people thinking and talking about and acting on climate change, which is ultimately our goal with Climate Decoded. Talk again soon.